Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning. It is uh, an incredible blessing and honor for us to be here. I was sitting there thinking as uh, you were leading us this morning, Pastor, that uh, I think it was 2005, the last time that I had the privilege of being here and speaking. And, uh, and so this is a, a bit of a homecoming for us when we think about ministry and our ministry in the past, it, it, our, our children were, um, they were born in Canada just before we moved back. And I'm from Grand Rapids originally, so, so West Michigan's home for me. So raising our children in their formative years all happened right here. And our youngest son, who's now 21, was born at Zealand Hospital. And um, so it's, it's like home. Um, this was one of our sweetest seasons of ministry, and so uh, being back here is, is a great privilege for us, and I'm very grateful to your pastor. I'm very blessed to hear the reports and the responses to his ministry and to his faithfulness for many years here, and to see what God is continuing to do. I, uh, we had the, the bike ride yesterday, and... and uh, you know, the team was out and doing their thing, and it was so reminiscent, and it was um, so encouraging to see that so many faithful people continuing to partner together um, to advance the cause of the gospel. We were with some friends that were part of our ministry here years ago, uh, midweek, and it's always interesting as a pastor to hear what people say and what they remember. And one of the former students said, you know, we're telling our children, when, when, when he was here, we were doing ministry together. He says, when we were high school, said, we, we, did, we did crazy stuff. We, 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 we did a golf course all through the church. It was, it was crazy. And then he said this. He said, but one of the unique things for us was that we always knew the purpose that we were doing the sometimes crazy stuff we were, and how that connected with the advancement of the kingdom and reaching people and discipling them for Christ. That was good enough for me. We were joking around with, with, with uh, Jeremy last night as I was beginning to speak and saying, nobody ever much remembers your specific messages. But over the course of time, if, they, if their lives are changed by the faithful in-season and out-of-season teaching of the text, then God does his work. He gets glorified, and you just get to be a part of it. So that's kind of the sweetness that this church always represents to us. Ken, good to see you. And those that were here back in the day from 95 to 2000 when we were here, they know that I'm a blabbering idiot about half the time. Well, the idiot part they know, and they remember now the blabbering too. So I'll try to get over that part of the emotion. 
tell you a little bit what we're doing now. God has, uh, after pastoring a series of churches until uh, about 2010, God has led us over the last decade into some unique experiences for a little bit down in South Bend, Indiana as executive director of a, of a nonprofit um, parachurch ministry. Uh, designed to help churches in the South Bend area more efficiently and effectively minister to the needs of people in poverty. And uh, that certainly was faith-shaping, eye-opening. It was very interesting. And uh, through no issues with us, uh, there was a transition in that ministry very shortly after we came. And so we're there a couple of years, and then God led us uh, to Tennessee, where uh, Cynthia is from, and her parents were getting older and, and needing of care, and we were making a transition out of that ministry and uh, w- weren't heading to anything else. And we said, well, God will meet us there. We'll move. We'll help care for your parents and see where God has us next. And uh, a series of different events unfolded, and uh, through a contact with Pastor Dave Dagwell, you guys remember um, in the early 2000s, he was the seniors ministry pastor here. He and I stayed friends, and he had moved from here to North Carolina and had become part of a ministry called Capital Commission. Capital Commission is an organization that seeks to raise up state ministers, as we call them, uh, uh, missionary chaplains that they put in the state capitals all across the nation. We currently have 23 state ministers across the United States, and our primary focus is to bring gospel ministry to the state legislatures all around the country. So my, while we live in Knoxville, my primary ministry is in Nashville, um, especially during legislative session. And some of you may or may not know, interestingly enough, I had no idea. I knew very little about politics, very little interest in politics before this. And um, so most state legislatures are part-time. That means that they meet for a season of the year and then do other uh, uh, activities in their districts. So from January to May, approximately, our legislature is in session. And so my ministry is there, and so I do Bible studies for both members, and I run a staff Bible study, do other prayer initiatives. Um, A lot of it is relational ministry at the Capitol. So uh, all day long, I'm going through the halls of the Capitol. I'm making appointments with legislators. I'm sitting down with them and doing pastoral care. How are you doing? What are your needs? How can I pray for you? And Oftentimes you find that people who, uh, who have a, a public service of co- some kind or, or a very public kind of, of uh, career, uh, oftentimes through the years in doing ministry, found that a lot of uh, doctors in my churches became my, my best friends. And I think it was in part because, th- as they told me, I-, I-, I have a very public profile. Who can I go to? Who can I talk to? I- I- it feels like I live a glasshouse life, and that's very vulnerable. And so, as a pastor, you feel the same way. Who do you go to? And as a legislator, you feel the same way. Who do you go to? So, I remember when I first began in uh, 2015, and and the legislature had not come into session yet. I, I agreed to come on the team middle of that year. 
And so I said to our, our national president, I said, what do I do for the next six months until legislature begins? And he said, well, why don't you just reach out to, to the men and women who are legislators in your community and tell them what you're doing and that you'd like to meet with them just to get to know them so that you have some relationship before you get, get to a session. So I did. One of the first persons that I reached out to actually went to a Baptist church in town. And I reached out to this person. I said, can we do lunch? He said, sure. So I got there. This is streaming, isn't it? I need to be a little careful what I do. And uh, so we met together, and he started to, within 10 minutes of sitting down at that lunch table, he started to unpack a whole series of challenges that he was facing. And with tears in his eyes, he looks at me and he said, I don't know why I told you all that. There are only three people on the face of the earth that know those issues in my life, my wife, my therapist, and you. I don't even dare tell my pastor. And in that moment, I realized that was why God was sending me to the state capitol. So I'm a missionary. I have to raise my own support. Moving from the north to the south, I had no network, no relationships with pastors, and uh, we weren't connected yet to a church. When we did, we found out that many of the churches in the south, um, they, they don't give individually or as individual churches to missionaries. So that, that journey has been very challenging. We're in the process. So I'm able to do ministry at the level of my support. So you can just pray for us. And um, so that's been quite a journey for us. And why don't you know a little bit about it? We'd love to keep you informed on what we do. So uh, in the back of the church after the service, we'll have a little sign-up sheet. If you'd like to put your email address, we'll send you our quarterly newsletter. And uh, we'd love to stay in touch with you. So that's a little bit about what we do. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Word. Jeremy told me he was doing the Psalms of Ascent and uh, asked if I would be interested in picking up the next one that was on the schedule. And I said, sure, I know that a lot of pastors really camp out in the New Testament. They don't know a lot about the Old Testament or how to exegete it, how to apply it. And as many of you know, um, in 1998, this church did its first Israel tour. And uh, you so graciously... Um, enabled the pastoral team to go to Israel, and that started a journey I could never have dreamed of. And so last fall, I had the opportunity for the first time to take a group of legislators to Israel and teach them the Word of God where God gave it. It was an amazing, amazing experience, and we had a governmental meeting for them, and uh, it was, uh, it, there were some very unique things, some unique things that the government of Israel, as they found that I was uh, guiding something like that, and they came to me and said, that looks like a, a model we'd like to use with some other initiatives in the United States, if you'd allow us to do that, and so some really neat things unfolded. And so a lot of my journey over the last 20 years, that was my 20th trip. And uh, so it's been a lot of studying the text in its original context. Now, when most pastors like Jeremy and myself go to seminary like Grand Rapids as we did, 
Um, they teach us about hermeneutics, the, the, the uh, so-called doctrine of how to exegete Scripture, and they talk to us about the historical, grammatical approach to exegeting the text. Tom remembers that as well. And here's what I found. We don't really know the historical very well, and we don't really care. And yet I have come to recognize that it is absolutely essential to understanding the original context, because as my son often says, Dad, it can never mean what it never meant. And if you don't know what it ever meant, then you won't be able to apply it effectively in our world today or correctly in our world today. And really, we need to remember that it's not so much us exegeting the text as the text exegeting us and telling us where we need, where we've gone off the path and what the true path is. So that's my heart. So you'll find that out today. So <clears throat> as a result of that, Old Testament passages are actually my comfort zone, and I hope that that's helpful, and it'll give you a little bit of perspective as to uh, where we come from in taking a look at Psalm 125. Let's begin, and I'll just read through this, this chapter, this psalm. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers shalom or peace be upon Israel. So as you probably know that there are 15 psalms or songs of ascents that were written by King David, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. So when you count each of those, it's 15, and we'll find out in a little bit that there are some significance to the 15. The teachers of Israel have always looked at these, this, this bulk of, of psalms in a unique way because they see in them that when King David wrote them, remember, King David is reigning during the time of the United Kingdom, right? So with Saul and then David and then his son Solomon and then for a few short years his son Rehoboam, that, that really in history is the zenith of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And so they have peace and, and, and while they never were a world empire, this, this was the greatest season of their history where the Torah was observed and where the temple service was carried out just as God had intended it. And yet, if you read these Psalms, they have a unique theme all the way through them. And there's this sense in which, and I know that you have been taught this, that these psalms were sung as, they, as the pilgrims, as the worshipers were coming back. In particular, three times a year, they were commanded to come back to Jerusalem to worship, two in the spring with Passover and Pentecost, and then one in the fall with tabernacles or Sukkot. 
And so when they would do that, they would come from the south toward the main gates into the temple precinct, and that was coming up a hill. And so they had this monumental roadway that came to the monumental southern stairs through which there were several gates, and they would come up those stairways, and they, they would empty out right onto the plaza. And so as the worshipers were coming in particular, they would sing these psalms of ascents. So for us, mostly, we just go, oh, okay, these are just the ones that they chose to sing as they were going up. Well, that's true. But if you sit and you read them all at one shot, you begin to see that they were singing about the challenges that they faced and that God was the answer to the challenge. And that as they sang, there's this sense that there is hope in God no matter what's coming our way. And you go, well, that ain't all good news. And so it's very interesting to see the dynamic of what was going on here. The, the, when it says it's the Psalms of Ascents, it, it is this Hebrew word um, that the root of which is often translated aliyah. Can you say aliyah? Now you know Hebrew. You're welcome. Don't go tell people you know all Hebrew. But aliyah, and aliyah is a very common word today because of the idea that it, um, the, the root idea is to elevate or to go up. So when a person in, in a synagogue, even today, and this has been true for several thousand years, in a synagogue, they take a weekly Torah portion and it's divided into seven segments. So even today, those that are chosen to read the Torah portion, and we see a, uh, an indication of that kind of dynamic in Luke chapter 4, remember where Jesus goes to the synagogue and he's asked to read from the scroll. Um, if you know the Hebraic idioms, you understand that when they're asked to read from the scroll, it has to do with reading the Torah. So in that sense, the person who is, so there'll be seven every week, every Saturday, every Shabbat, who comes up to the Bema, to the bench where the scroll is laid out, those seven people read that segment, and because they come up to the bench, it's called an aliyot, which is plural. It's an, they're, they're coming to do an aliyah. They're coming up to the bench. Much like immigration, the idea is you're, you're immigrating to Israel, which is considered to be a spiritual commitment because, man, if you live in America, why in the world would you want to go live in Israel? unless the Spirit of God stirs the soul and you go, this is my homeland, I'm a Jew, this is where I ought to be. And of course, we know prophetically that God's going to stir the heart of the Jewish people and they're going to come back so that there became this spiritually based metaphor that to go to Israel was the idea that Jer Jerusalem is the center of Israel and the temple is the center of Jerusalem. And so the idea of moving to Israel was for the purpose of the center of God's heart, the center of God's eye, and it's up at the top of the mountain. So when you're emigrating to Israel, you're making Aliyah. 
cool, huh? And so when we look at this, we see the Psalms of Ascents, and we understand a little better what's intended. But that wasn't the only, the idea of them going up to the temple and singing at that point wasn't the only time that they would have used these or understood them as a sense. Here's a couple other that you might find interesting. One of them in particular is that in the holy temple courtyard, there was an ultra-wide stairway that consisted of 15 large semicircular steps that ascended to the intersection of the courtyard. So you may have heard this over the years, people teaching here because of the influence of some of those Jewish backgrounds here in West Michigan. But there is the, the larger temple plaza, and that was considered the court of the Gentiles. And then in the temple precinct specific, there was at first the court of the women or the women's court, and then beyond that was the men's court, and then beyond that was the priest's court, and that the, what separated the men's court from the priest's court was these 15 circular stairs. And when and on these, at certain times of the year associated with these festivals, the Levites would come down on those steps one by one and they would sing the Psalms of Ascents. It must have been absolutely beautiful. They were also sung, it said, they called Ascents because they were sung on a high ascendant musical note. Wouldn't you love to have been an observer and hear that? The psalms were sung starting in a low tone of voice and steadily ascending to a higher one. That's interesting. It's also said that these psalms were sung by the Jews who ascended from Babylon where they had been taken captive and as they were coming back and going to Jerusalem, it was said that that was an ascent. It was an early expression of aliyah, or ascent, and that they would sing these on their way back to Israel during the times of Ezra the scribe. And here's one that I love as much as any of them. It's said that they're called the Psalms of Ascent because these psalms praise, exalt, and elevate God himself. So the idea we're supposed to get on these Psalms of Ascent is this, that they elevated the worshipers to trust in their God and to raise their hopes and to release their praise. Like several of the phrases in the songs we sang today intended to elevate our God and to raise our hopes and to increase our praise. And so these psalms can do the same for us if we understand them more closely and in the way that those for whom they were written understood and sang them. So let's dive in again to the text. Again, verse 1. It says here, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures or abides forever. The key word in this verse comes right at the beginning, and it is the word trust. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. This is very interesting. And if you have the background we've just talked about, you begin to understand that 
the choice of words that the Spirit of God inspired King David to use here is very intentional because the word for trust here literally means to take refuge or to hide. But typical in Judaism or in, a, in, in Hebrew, it's not just that. We kind of get that idea. But it is the idea of to hide with bold confidence. Like, what? How do you do that? Hide with bold confidence? I'm going into the closet with bold confidence. Eh, what? That's like jumbo shrimp, right? Like, that sounds like an oxymoron to me. But it's not if you understand it. Because it, it, it immediately begins to indicate to us that this this song was given by David as an entrustment from God himself to his people by recognizing right from the beginning that their life, and by application, your life and my life, is going to come front-loaded with struggle. It's going to come front-loaded with difficulty. I was here yesterday, and I, I, I trust that they'll trust me with this thought. I'd been riding, uh, I'd been cycling with Jason Allaire on Tuesday, and we were talking, and I had forgotten, as he told me as we were cycling, and, and we, were, we were reminiscing about the past, and Jason had come to know the Lord around the time that I was here, not specifically through Cardia, through the youth ministry. He came to know the Lord through his neighbors who took him to Awana and taught him the Bible and memorized Scripture. And he said, that family's been so strategic in my life. And then he started to tell me the challenges that this family had. When I was here, their children were high schoolers. They were in my youth group. They were the best athletes. They were handsome. They were attractive. They were nice kids. They were well-mannered. They were well-raised, and their parents were faithful here. And they, they reached the family next door. And then I heard that the dad had had a stroke. And thank God he's recovered substantially. And then he said, and the mom recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And he said, and my best friend, who I named my son after, he's got a cyst in his back, and now he's got to shut down his business because he's afraid to have surgery because he may never walk again if he does. This is a kid that played baseball in college. He's one of the most gifted athletes we had. And I saw them yesterday, last night, at the service. And I'm looking at Nels and Chris. And I'm saying... How do you navigate the wave after wave of challenge and struggle? And suddenly as a pastor, you've got all these verses that you're about to exegete and you're about to tell people, God is powerful and he can take care of you even in the midst of the struggle. And all of a sudden you go, God, 
we need to hold on to you. We need the hope that you already knew we were going to need when you put these words in your sacred text so that people like that in the midst of the struggle and you, no matter what your struggle or your difficulty or your pain or your heartache is, that you know your God has got this. That's what this is really about. You see, for the Jewish people, there have been very few eras in their history where they have not been in struggle, where they have not been in exile. There was that brief about 100 years. But mostly since then, it's been exile. And, and they always understood that the tabernacle and later the temple was really the heart of God's eye, and that that was the place where the Shekinah glory of God, the manifest presence of God was, so that they understood that they came to the temple because that was the closest on earth they could be, and they delighted to be near God. And the rabbis had taught that God established the tabernacle right after they sinned with the golden calf, and after cutting covenant with God, and God promising to always be their God, and never to forsake them, that they forsook him. And God said, because you did this, you are estranged from me, so I now will come near to you. And God initiated the tabernacle, and God initiated the temple sacrifices, and God initiated to manifest his presence in the Holy of Holies so that he could bring his people back and bring them back into fellowship. He was never going to forsake them, and the Torah was never about how they could work their way to heaven. They never thought that. It was about fellowship. The sacrifices were not about salvation. They were about fellowship. And God initiated as a way for the people to express their penitence and their desire to be close to God. And God was always there and said, come to me. That's sweet. And so here's the Jewish people. And at times there wasn't a temple. There's not been a temple for 2,000 years. And God said, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never divorce you no matter how unfaithful you are. I will always be your God. And though I will punish you, I will bring you back. And I will give you these verses to remind you that, uh, look at that, that the, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Mount Zion won't go anywhere, and God is there, and you are secure because I am your Lord. And so it's interesting that in the middle of all of this, these verses have given to a beleaguered people through the millennia the hope that keeps them a people and keeps them enduring. And some apologists will say that the fact that the Jewish people still exist today and that they are now back in the land is the greatest argument for the existence of God because there, there is no other way to explain it. It is a God who promised and who is faithful, and they are his people. And so none of us like the inherent struggle against our preferred routine and pleasure. We, we don't like it in COVID-19. I had a 
brief conversation with someone this morning saying, uh, now, are, are we really sure that this latest edict by the governor allows us to meet like this without a mask, but everywhere else it's okay? Well, that's quite a turn of events, and we ought to be thankful for that. But we're kind of, I don't know about you, but everything I can tell, especially up here, we're kind of tired of COVID-19, right? Are we, are, are we done with this already? And early on, they said, and I've heard it repeated, there's likely never going to be a vaccine for the coronaviruses. Most of them don't have any. And there may not be one. How, what are we going to do? Well, beloved, I want to remind you that in early March, when this suddenly went public, God was not surprised. He didn't suddenly go, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to have a plan B here. Um, shoot, this thing went crazy, and I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, I didn't, but he did. And he's always out on the front end giving us a reason for hope and faithfulness and courage and to be reminded that sometimes when life is a struggle and unjust to us, that he is in control. And that when we embrace them according to the trust that we have in our Father, it shows where our confidence lies. Just think about that word trust here, verse 1. And, and, and this word trust literally is the theme of this whole chapter. So we're drilling down a little bit on verse 1. We'll move quickly through the rest of them because it's really where the heart of this, this passage is. Trust is a matter of placing yourself at the mercy of someone else, so to speak. Did you ever think about that? In other words, when you trust someone, you are being vulnerable that they will hold up their side of the relationship dynamics. So, you know, think of it this way. The word trustworthy speaks to the other person's strength of character to provide what we are dependent on them for. So, for example, if we trust the bank to hold the mortgage, it's because we believe that they're financially stable enough to hold the integrity of this loan because they own my house more than I do. That's a trust relationship. So the principle is this. The greater the integrity of the person or group in, in whom trust is placed, the greater the trust there can be on our part. So if this word trust means to be boldly confident, then in other words, God is so trustworthy and so strong that he's like that cleft in the rock that Elijah was hidden in, right? That's, that's the retreat. That when God showed him after all the exploits that Elijah had just done through God's power and enablement, he loses faith and he runs in fear. And God comes to him and says, Elijah, you need a lesson in who's trustworthy here and where faith lies. And as that happens, remember, there, God sends the storm and the wind and the rain and hides Elijah in the cleft of the rock. And when it's all over, God comes in a still, small voice. And what we're supposed to get here is this, that even the still, small voice of God is more 
powerful than all the energy in the wind, the rain, and the storm that Elijah had just seen that scared the wits out of him. Just the small voice has infinitely more power than all of that energy combined. And so when we look at this passage and the, and, and the pilgrims are singing as they go, they're recognizing that Mount Zion will never be moved. It cannot be shaken because my God put it there and he controls it. And that's where my confidence and trust is supposed to be. So with that, God says, all right. So here's what you can do. If you understand who I am, if you come to the top of this mountain and you survey Mount Zion, you're going to understand that you have every reason to be hopeful even while you're in exile. And beloved, this is not the end. There are greater days coming when Messiah returns. There are sweet days and there are good days, but it's not just because life is good. It's because God is good. And that's where we have to keep our hope and our confidence. And when that happens, God wants us to step out in trust. It's not a passive thing. It's an active, bold confidence to act on what we know to be true about him. And David said that what he knew was that God was like Mount Zion, and it not only is a mountain that can't be removed, but to understand that Mount Zion is often used in the Scripture poetically to represent leadership. Here's an interesting thought here. You see, when David conquered Jerusalem, he came and ultimately built his house. And then he felt guilty, and he said, man, we ought to build a house for God. And God said, no, you're, you, you've been too much a man of war. Do it for your son Shlomo, or Shalom, or Solomon, the peace guy. Let him build my house. So that's what happened. So what happens is on top of the, these Judah mountains were in, in Jerusalem, you have the king and the leader of the nation uh, in civic sense or political sense. And then you have the house of God. And who controls the house? The priests, the Levites. And so you have both the political and the spiritual leadership of Israel on Mount Zion. And so the rabbis always took it to mean poetically that when we're talking figuratively about Mount Zion, we're talking about God's leadership. And that here, David says, the leadership of my people have my covenant promises that I am there for them. That they can step out boldly and give the leadership that's necessary. So I ask you the question, in what avenues of your life has God called you to be a leader? Almost all of us have them, whether it's a mom or a dad or an employment or even in peer groups and all kinds of other avenues as well. Do you have decisions as a leader, a responsible person or party? Does it seem as if 
all you can see are the storms or the risks or the pitfalls or the chirping of the children or the crowds or the group. I think about our governor right now in Tennessee. He's a, he's, he's a godly man. Michael W. Smith is one of his best friends. He loves the Lord. And everybody was excited to vote him in uh, a year and a half ago, whatever that was. And, and so we're friends on Facebook just because he has a political page. And, and so I watch what he puts out there. And then I read the comments. And, and all these conservatives that voted him in, they're like, you sorry idiot, you're a one-timer now. And on and on it goes. And some of them you know are Christian, and what they put out there, you go, oh my word. And I thought of him as I was putting this message together and thinking, when your leadership, and listen, here's the lesson, when your leadership is consistent with the principles and the truths of God's Word, and the decisions that you're making are not to advance your leadership, but to advance the care and the cause of the people over whom you're given leadership, consistent with the truth of the kingdom and Word of God, then God says, I'm in the middle of that. And you can boldly and confidently make your decision and know that you have the blessing of heaven no matter what happens, that you can be secure. So when we place our trust in God, he can show himself strong. And when we trust our own sense of ideas or assessment independent of God's truth, then God is not glorified and he does not work in that. But that's what he tells us in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. People need leaders like that. People need you and me to give that kind of godly leadership with confidence and trust in the Lord. So verse 2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And you look at that and you go, wow, that sounds, you know, kind of like the repeat of verse 1, only instead of Mount Zion, it's Jerusalem. Well, you'd be right and wrong on that. It is, and there is a sense here where this is a Jewish or he Hebraic poetic formula where you make a statement and then you repeat it. It's, it's part of their f poetic formula. It's called parallelism. But there's more here than perhaps meets the eye. You see, in this verse, the imagery turns from Mount Zion to Jerusalem, the city established on the mountains of the Judean range. But if Mount Zion represented the leadership of God's people, Jerusalem as a city then represented the people as a whole, the people like you and me. And so in these two images, what is starkly missing, look at them, what's starkly missing is you talking about Mount Zion and Jerusalem is he's talking about the hills, but he never mentions the walls. He never mentions the man-made stuff that was used for defense. And the rabbi said what the people were 
saying and singing is that as we go up here, it's God is our defender, and God is our rock, and God is our hope, and he will never change, and he will never move, and he will never abandon us. And so their protection is certain, and that while walls can fail, God cannot. And Paul said it similar in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. In these days of challenge, we must be certain that we fight, listen carefully, not with the cunning of human wisdom and human effort, but with the wisdom and grace of God. Our ministry is not political and capital commission. We're non-political, non-partisan, non-denominational. So when I go into the capital, I'm not trying to run Bible studies for the conservatives, although they're most quickly to attend. I'm there to minister to Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, I'm there to let the Word of God teach, guide, sometimes correct, because if we can see a heart and life changed by the Word of God, then they don't change every time a new policy or a new party leader is put into place. They now have a rock-solid foundation to assess their values, their principles, and their political agenda. But here's what it does. It allows me to step back and find that God has his people, believe it or not, in both Republican and Democrat Party. That God didn't establish the world with two parties, and he didn't call them Republicans, and he didn't call them Democrats. And he didn't say that the best people I got are white. And he didn't say that all people of color are thugs and thieves. And God was not racist. And God did not simply broad brush all the people that are in the midst of all this conflict. And God does not speak disparagingly. And God does not look for the, the most recent nasty meme to put out there as some way to make a statement. And God does not delight in destroying somebody's personhood just because we don't like the next edict that they establish and put out there. God says, Jesus said it this way, here's how I advance my kingdom, not by four spiritual laws and a sinner's prayer. I advance my kingdom when my people embody who I am. When they love me with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then they are boldly confident to move forward in loving their neighbor as themselves. And when they do that, there will be a disarming of conflict in such a way with peoples whose hearts I am already at work in so that my gospel has credibility when you present the way of salvation. And we are advancing the decline of our own cause 
when we fail to understand that loving our neighbor as ourself is the first and great thing we must do so that our gospel has depth and significance. I have a family member. It's my nephew. He's an avowed atheist. Grew up in a domination that dominates our, our uh, landscape around here. And he recently said on Facebook, he said, you know what? I've become incredibly disillusioned with America and where this whole thing is going. He said, as an atheist, he said, I, I have sat down and analyzed this, and he said, I, I looked at it, and I came to a re realization. This was in the last week he said this. Lives in Coopersville. He said, you know what? I, this is what I realized, that my hope for America, in spite of being an atheist, was actually in the Christians in this nation. <laughs> he said, he said, I, I've long realized that much of my value system comes from my Christian background, and I appreciate it, and, I, and I've always felt that it was a strength. He says, but when I watch the way Christians are behaving and what they're saying and what they're endorsing, he said, I, I can't imagine that they're any better than anything else that's out there, and what's out there is not very good, and I'm com becoming completely disillusioned with Christianity and with America. How, how, how do I respond to that? Because from the vantage point that I have, I'm watching a lot of the same things. Beloved, you and I who know our God have to be incredibly careful to be wise and to be gracious about the truth, to care about the hurting, the disenfranchised, those that have struggled with bias, those, those that are vulnerable, and on and on it goes. Because when we demonstrate love, when we demonstrate that we have an ear for the people who are most hurting, then those people begin to listen to the message that we share. And all of that comes into play right here because we realize that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they're mighty in God. Verse 3 says, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hand to do evil. It's really interesting to look at this and realize that this probably in this, ver in this passage is probably the most messianic verse here. And what is really in view is the idea that there's coming a day when the Messiah is going to come and establish his kingdom, and the Jewish people and Christian people have always agreed about that together. We may see the timing of those is a bit different, but certainly that the Messiah is coming. And that was part of their hope. And, and it's interesting then that what's indicated here is that even in the days when Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, that he's going to protect the land of Israel from the wicked, 
from the wicked. And that is because that when the wicked are allowed to be part of the righteous in terms of their heart and their thinking, when we move from just having compassion on the broken and the lost to embracing their framework and their mindset, that they always have a negative effect on believers. And even in the millennium, God's going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, that's true in the millennium. How true is that in your life and mine today? And the application becomes pretty easy here to say, where are the places of compromise in your life? Those places nobody sees, those thoughts that nobody else knows, those ways that God looks down and says, to the degree that you compromise is, to the, is the degree to which you are losing my blessing. You see, that flows right into verse 4 because it says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. You, you see, we live in a day where there's so much compromise that the appeal to the idea that God knows how much of a sinner I am, which is true, right? And I'm thankful that he loves me anyway. We sang it today, right? And that's a truth. But the weakness in our culture, our spiritual culture, is that somehow that's an excuse to be weak, to engage in sin and know that somehow God's just going to love me anyway and it's all, it's all good. I'll just come back and repent. Well, of course, you can always repent. You can always come back to God. But, and you are loved regardless if you are born again, and that's good news because I'm a worse sinner than I even know about myself, and God knows intimately. And I'm thankful that he knew all of that in eternity past before he chose to set his love on me and bring me to himself. I'm grateful for that. And yet, it's not true in the sense that how I live is not irrelevant or the idea that it doesn't affect the purpose of God to bless me and bring good or evil into my life accordingly. But here's the hope. The first thing in verse 4 is that God puts it here first to say this, that by focusing on the blessing that God seeks to bring to the good, that we are supposed to be motivated toward love and good deeds all the more by the joy that the God of the supernal heavens is looking down in love, eager to bless you, eager to bless me. He's looking for those whose hearts are good and pure toward him. That's how we're supposed to move forward, that because God loves me and his love is unconditional and because he never changes and I'm always secure in him, that I move forward in my life saying, God, I'm so grateful that I can't help but live a life that shows who you are and is lived and surrendered to you. God delights to look down and bring blessing. That when we love our neighbor, that is how the gospel is made true. It's a simple illustration, but at our home in Tennessee now, 
People who knew me 20 years ago wouldn't believe this is true, but we now raise chickens. My son has, a, has his own little cottage with his wife and our two little grandchildren about 100 feet behind us on our property. And he raises ducks, and we have a goat, and we have dogs, and they have a cat. And it's like this hobby farm. And I'm like, how did I ever get to this? <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. I, I love farm fresh eggs, so it's, it's mostly worth it. But we have predators. We have two and a half acres of wooded hillside in the hills of Tennessee. And so we have coons and we have possums and we have skunks and we have coyotes and we have foxes and they love chickens. My goat handles it pretty well. Chickens, eh, not so much. So you have to do a lot of maintenance. Every morning you got to let them loose. And every evening, you got to secure them in. And it gets tedious. And I get tired. And my youngest son often gets up quietly in the morning and goes out before I ever can. And he feeds and he cares for them. And he lets them out. And then I get ready to go on with my day. And I go, hey, Ben, what about the chickens? Dad, don't worry. I've taken care of them. It's such a blessing. And sometimes at night when it gets late and it's sundown, and I've, I've been a little late because if you don't get there by sundown, then the predators come quick. Chickens got to go in at sundown. <clears throat> They'll go, they won't go in till sundown. Very narrow window of time. And I'll go running out there, and all of a sudden I'll look back there and see that they've all been secured. And my oldest son, when he took care of his ducks, he saw that dad didn't get out there yet, and he takes care of securing all the livestock. And it's not a big thing, but I have thought about that and said, it fills my heart with love and generosity for my sons because they have served their father. And if that's true for me, beloved, times infinity, that's our heavenly father for us. And so they're singing, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart. That's the heart of your heavenly Father. And he finishes and says, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. It's a similar thought as to verse 4, just said from the negative perspective, as if we needed a reminder. You're not always motivated simply by the opportunity to do good. Have you noticed? (laughs) Once in a while, I need a reminder from the negative. You're going to get spanked. You know, you had to correct your children, not just tell them how good life can be, right? We need it too. I find it interesting. God almost always adds a negative comment of restraint or warning whenever he has spoken words of blessing for obedience. What's interesting, too, is that usually the warnings far outpace the promise of blessing. And I thought, why is that? Certainly because God knows, as the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, beloved, these are times of testing and trial, tiredness of constant challenge from the governing leaders, from petulant and violent protesters, 
from fair probably and some true critique from racially disadvantaged people toward many of us to the loss of economic opportunity to severe health risks and so many, so many other things in our day. But God was not caught off, caught off guard in this. And his allowance of trials is not to trip us up, but to test us. I often have said this over the years. What Satan wants to use as a temptation, God always intends to use as a test. And here's the difference. A temptation is intended to see you fall. But God is sovereign, and he wants to use it as a test because he believes in you, and he wants to see you succeed and overcome it. Isn't that cool? That's my God. That's my hope. That's why I trust him. That's why I rush into the cleft of the rock to know that boldly, when I'm reminded who he is, I can take my step back out and move into my world and say, God, you're in control of this. You're going to see us through. And even if things in America continue to decline, there's never going to be a greater opportunity for the light to shine. So we should not live in fear, even if we're apprehensive of what, what goes on and what could go on. We have a greater opportunity than ever before to show the magnitude and the greatness and the glory of our God. So the little things matter. The little compromises matter. Where are the frustrations instead of faith in your life? How will you show people in need the goodness, kindness, and mercy of God and release his favor and blessing for you? In the end, it's an invitation to trust him. Will you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for reminding us, like you did those ancient worshipers of the one true God as they sang and as they walked toward the temple, as they came back to their homeland so many times, and you wanted them to rehearse the truth until their heart was once again taken up with belief and faith in the truth that their mouths were speaking and singing. The truth is, Father, you know how easy it is for us to falter. But you pray for us that our faith might be strengthened because you've given us your word. And we're so grateful. So in these days, help us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, so that the message of our faith can go forward and can find those hearts and lives that you are preparing for harvest. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.